I wonder how many of you in here are old enough to remember the television series Columbo with Peter Falk. I remember it well because my parents would always watch it. It was part of a rotation, I think, on Saturday or Sunday nights with like shows like Macmillan and Wife. I didn't like most of them, but I loved the Columbo series because of how quirky Columbo was. Always came in ruffled clothes like he'd slept in them. Always wore that beige raincoat, whether it was raining or not. And he always had just very calm, uh, non-defensive questions to ask the people about whether they were involved with or were witnesses to the murder he's trying to solve that particular evening. One of his trademarks was to ask a bunch of questions of a particular person, and we always were kept guessing who the murderer was. And then he would say his goodbyes. And as he's pulling the door open or as he's getting ready to walk down the path, he puts his hand up to his eyebrow and stops still with his back to the person and then turns slowly and says, Ah, one more thing. And it's with that last question that he was always able to indict this suspect. It was the answer to that question that the suspect and Columbo both knew he had his murderer. This is how the end of 1 Timothy feels to me. I almost feel like Paul was getting ready to walk out of the room after he wrote verse 16. It had that beautiful doxology at the end, even ending with amen. But then you go into 17. Now, one more thing. I want you to consider how the Bible, how God's Word applies to those who are rich among you. Now, this idea of money is no minor subject to Paul in writing 1 Timothy. It's one of the important subjects in the preservation of God's church for God's people and for God Himself. You'll remember, Paul addresses it when concerning the leaders of the church. Deacon candidates were not to be greedy for dishonest gain. Elder candidates must not be lovers of money. Then you'll remember when Paul's instructing the church or instructing Timothy to instruct the church how they should care for the widows in their midst, he insists that the widows who have surviving family members must first seek financial support from those family members before they come to the church for financial support. And it's kind of shocking, if you remember in our study there, that Paul writes that family members who refuse to support financially those in their family who are in need are, by their refusal, denying their faith. You can't be any more clear than Paul is in making the connection from the use of our money and our faith. We saw in chapter 6 that it was the love of money that secured the downfall of the false teachers. They sought to increase the number of those who followed them so that they could then increase their bank accounts. These false teachers that were working their way into the churches at Ephesus would charge for their teaching. For them, becoming wealthy, we saw in chapter 6, was a means to contentment. Paul warned Timothy that this kind of thinking was a snare. And this snare would lead to the ruin and destruction of all those who set their goal as acquiring wealth. So all of what Paul has written so far about money has been in the category of warning and danger. Money, the possession of it, the making of it, the acquiring of it, the amassing of it can very much be a detriment to our faith. For the believer, Paul warns us that the love of money or having a primary goal, the acquisition of more money, threatens the preservation of the church. And it threatens the faith of the one acquiring wealth. 
now as if he wants to make one last point, maybe something he thought he should have said earlier in the discussion. He wants to tack on to the end of his letter a biblical way to think about those who have money. It's important to see in light of all Paul has written that wealth is not a bad thing. The sense of these verses does not communicate any negativity towards obtaining or securing wealth when kept within its proper perspective. He's acknowledging that people with wealth will be a part and are a part of the churches in Ephesus. This is a blessing. What Paul is doing here in verses 17 through 19 is exactly what he was doing in verses 11 through 16 of chapter 6 that we looked at last week. He's wanting those who are wealthy to pursue godliness and flee from sin. He wants those who are wealthy to maintain and continue to fight to keep eternity in view. In verses 11 through 16, he was speaking in very general terms, telling them, telling us, telling all Christians that we must grasp eternal life. We must fight to keep the proper perspective. Now in verses 17 through 21, he does the same thing, specifically applied to those who have wealth. You must keep a biblical perspective, an eternal perspective. Now, Paul doesn't give us a definition of what he means when he refers to the rich. He doesn't give us check stubs or a gross or net number to determine who of us are rich and who isn't. Given that, the temptation for us might be, when faced with a passage like this, is to set our bank accounts right up against 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, and say, good, I don't have to pay attention here. This is not for me, as determined by the stack of bills still waiting to be paid on my desk. But I want to say this morning to all of us, it would be a mistake for us to say this doesn't have some application to any of us in this room this morning. It would be a mistake not to apply this to us because we might inherently, subjectively, not place us in the category of being rich. Let's be careful not to tune out Paul's instruction here. In every culture, in every age, wealth is always a subjective term. Paul's concern, obviously, is not to give us hard and fast lines as to who is wealthy and who is not. I believe his point in putting this kind of significant P.S. on his letter is to help Christians think about our money, however much it is, in biblical terms. Paul is saying we have already dressed the impoverished in chapter 5 and to some degree in chapter 3. Now let's think about those who are not impoverished. Here's how you should think about the money that God has blessed you with. Let's first notice here in this passage how Paul kind of puts this parentheses of a time continuum for us to think about money. He begins by addressing the rich in this present age. When we see those kinds of things, we want to kind of raise our sensitivity level. What's he saying there? He ends that passage in verse 19 by referring to the rich storing up treasure for themselves for when? For some time other than this present age, for the future. He says, taking hold of life, which is truly life. This is important because Paul wants those with the means to see that there is something much bigger, something much more enduring than the money that they have in this present age. It's no mistake that Paul is using investment language here. 
But he's emphasizing that the dividends that we should be looking for from the wealth that God has blessed us with is going to be paid and will be enduring in the eternal age. In other words, people with money, our life, our wealth is but a mist. We are called to lean forward and see how our money now in the present age can be used for eternity. More on that in just a minute. So he goes on about the dangers inherent for those who have money. And then he answers those dangers about placing your hope there, about becoming proud because you have a lot of money. He addresses those dangers by pointing to the ultimate source of all wealth, the ultimate source of all hope, and that is God. And then he goes to the positive admonitions to those who are blessed with wealth, those who are not impoverished. And he ends again with the eternal perspective. So two parts. Warnings and admonitions about this present age and then encouragement to think beyond that to where God is taking us. Let's think about it together. In verse 17, Paul has two warnings. The rich should not become proud, nor should the rich put their hope in their wealth. These warnings grow out of the same heart condition experienced by the false teachers and their desire to have more money. When money is seen as a means to our own prosperity, our own security, our own standing, our own reputation, we have then crossed the line. We've rejected God. We have decided to make money our idol. We have decided to make money our functional God. So the same heart condition applies here as it did to the false teachers. He goes on to state the obvious, at least I believe what's obvious in our own day and age, and that's the uncertainty of riches. There's a whole lot of talk nowadays regarding spending. Spending on the federal level, spending on the state level, perhaps even in your own home, spending on a personal level. And much of this talk is apocalyptic. You hear it if you listen to the radio, if you read any websites, if you watch TV. Many are saying that we are spending our children's and our grandchildren's and our great-grandchildren's future. Many are promoting the fact that we ought to buy gold for our own security. We need to buy something that is called food insurance because some of the doomsayers out there are saying our society is going to become a massive upheaval. Rioting and looting will take place when we become, yet again, like the country of Greece. If you listen to the news and you read the newspapers or listen to talk radio, you've been subjected to such predictions and analysis. And I'm not going to say one way or the other where I fall on that. In fact, just this Friday was more warning about the impending doom of our economy. The worldwide economy blared from TV because Hungary is on the precipice of being able to be cratered. Are we going to collapse like them? If we're not careful, if we don't keep eternity in view, if we don't apply over all of the news a biblical perspective, we too can become frustrated, anxious, discouraged, and even panicky. Even if you're unaware of all the goings-on nationally and internationally, if you don't even listen, and I would commend that you don't, to the rhythm and hum of the news and the predicted impending national budget crisis, you've probably experienced at some point in your life some sort of anxiety and discouragement with your own personal budgets. When we allow these kinds of things to begin to fill our vision, and then when those things begin to allow us to grow anxious and worried, 
over all that's going on, either internationally or here at home, or even with our own personal budgets, one thing that we have to admit is that we are, at that moment, missing out on the joy God has called us to, the joy that God has delivered us into. And so we need to hit the reset button. We need to change our perspective. That's what Paul does for us here in verse 17. And he gives us robust, practical advice on how in our hearts and minds to answer all that's out there. First and foremost, he says, for Christians, remember, remember universally from ages past until ages future, for all time, remember this, God is the provider. We sing it every Lord's Day. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. He is the one who richly provides us. God is the one who richly provides us everything. And you see the motivation that Paul gives there, the motivation that he's applying to God as to why he richly provides us everything. It is so that we may enjoy all that God richly provides. Let that settle in for a minute. God is the source of everything that we have. God will, it's a promise from Him, richly provide all that we need. And God does this so that His people will enjoy it. Everything we have, everything we have has been provided to us from the gracious hand of a loving Father who seeks for you enjoyment. The purpose He has given you anything and everything, all that you have, has been for you to experience joy in the present age. No aesthetic kind of lifestyle is necessary. God blesses you so that you will have joy. We see here we don't serve a miserly, tight-fisted, stingy, miserable kind of deity. This God who has saved us, this God who has promised to deliver us into eternity of pure and rapturous joys, wants us to begin now to experience a taste of that. So He provides, God is the one who provides us with everything for the purpose that we might enjoy it. This is where this passage has universal application. Without regard to our own personal bank accounts, without regard to federal budgets, without regard to the international chaos on financial points, this has universal application. Paul teaches us that whatever we have, be it plenty or be it little, all of it is from the gracious hand of a God who loves us, who determines for us to enjoy it. Now there are two roadblocks that Paul gives us to our enjoying what we have. Pride and a short-sighted hope. Pride in what we have knocks God out of the picture. It's evident enough. Pride in possessions necessarily requires that we see ourselves as a source of all that we have. That's where pride sits. That's where pride lives. I am the source. I'm prideful. When we become the source, when our federal government becomes our ultimate source, when our employers become the ultimate source, when the entrepreneurial business that we have started with blood, sweat, and tears becomes our ultimate source of income, of security, then we will for sure 
guaranteed become prideful if we succeed or panicky and anxious if we don't. And with pride come insecurity and a constant quest for more. We believe that we must, by our own strength, pursue hard the particular level in which our pride rests. We have to work hard to earn more. And so if it begins to slip away, we, of course, become anxious. If we lose it, we become discouraged and depressed. We must work hard and long to maintain the level And so we become weary and empty. You see how all of these consequences of seeing ourselves as the source of everything that we have, all of the consequences of that robs us of the joy God purposes for us as He blesses us with very much or with very little. The only antidote is to remember that by faith, God is the giver of all we have. And so as we receive, we seek to acknowledge Him and His giving by finding joy in anything and everything that we have and who it is that has given us anything and everything. The second roadblock to enjoying God's abundant and gracious gifts to us is to knock God out of the picture as the one who is our only hope. This is tied to the first, of course. We put hope in the almighty dollar, We can only be happy and content when we reach a certain level, when we are able to retire, when we can acquire the thing that we think is going to give us that long sought after contentment. Our hope gets pinned to our ability to achieve those things. And when that happens, God is no longer the source who has given us all we need. And if He's not our source, then He cannot be our hope. Our only hope is our ability to work to get it. Those are Paul's warnings in verse 17. In verses 18 through 19, Paul gives us the proper action for those who see God as the source of all hope and riches that he's given us. With that proper perspective now, Paul encourages us how we might experience the joy that God has designed for us and the blessings that he's given us. If we were to summarize verses 18 through 19 in a phrase, we would say, enjoy all of God's gifts now as you anticipate and invest in your eternal future. Just as we see God as the source of all we have, Paul says our enjoyment of His gifts is realized as we invest not in the here and now, but in eternity. There are two primary admonitions Paul gives to those who seek to enjoy all God's, all that God has blessed them with. And these things find their context, as all of 1 Timothy has, specifically in the local body in the communion of God's people in His church. The first admonition is to do good. Using a play on words, he says to be rich in good works. Okay, you see what he's doing now. He's not saying, those of you who are rich because you've got large bank accounts, what I want you to focus on is not your wealth in the money that you have. Begin to focus now on how you can amass wealth in doing good. To enjoy all that God has blessed us with and with our hope secured in only Him, Paul says we're to overflow in good works. In this context, Paul is saying those with the means are to use those means for the sake and service of God's church. They are to overflow in the way that they give, and they are to overflow in the way that they serve God's people and His church. 
The only other place this particular word that we find in verse 18 is used in all of the Bible is in Acts 14. And here, Paul is describing God as pouring rain from heaven. So, there might be this result. Those who receive the rain might have fruitful seasons and their hearts might be satisfied with food and joy. As God overflows the heavens with rain, Paul is using the same word and saying those who have the means must overflow so that God's people may have satisfied hearts and joy. So the giver might have a satisfied heart and joy. God blesses us above beyond anything we could have ever hoped or imagined. And in order to enjoy these blessings, Paul is saying you now have the opportunity to mimic God. You now have the opportunity to bless those that God has blessed. To use God's blessings for you to bless those He loves. Secondly, Paul says those who have been blessed by God's gracious providence in their lives, materially and otherwise, should have a default posture. They should have a particular posture of generous sharing. This phrase Paul uses is very active. It's, it's moving. It's, it's a kinetic kind of phrase. It's got a lot of energy. Its, move, its movement is always forward. As if those who are blessed are leaning forward and they're enthusiastically looking for those that they can generously share God's blessings with. The Greek word Paul uses for ready to share is helpful and again is only used right here in 1 Timothy 6. 18 and 19. It comes from the word koinonia. And most of you know that we get our word fellowship from the word koinonia. So Paul is saying there's a kinship that the wealthy have with those who are united to Christ with them. There is a familial relationship of the wealthy with those who are impoverished. They are of one family, one fellowship, and the default is to run as fast as they can to serve and share with their family members. Paul has told us that this is the way God has designed His people so that they may experience the joy He has purposed for them. We seek to do good. We seek to share generously. All for the benefits of God's people and His church and all with the promise that we will experience joy. This is God's prescription for joy in this present age. And then in verse 19, He he takes us by the chin and He And he points our vision forward. He's showing us that what we do in the here and now, if we follow the prescription of verse 18, is an investment in our eternal future. We are investing now, and we do receive the dividend of joy now, but there is something much greater, something much more enduring that we're storing up for us in heaven. Think about the spiritual and economic equation Paul lays out for us here. God has designed His people and their church to be recipients of double dividends. And yet we do not gain these dividends by holding fast to the blessings God has given to us. We generously share them. We seek to do good. We seek to become rich by doing good for the benefit and betterment of God's people and His church. And the second dividend, the enduring eternal treasure in heaven. It will never spoil or fade. If you let that kind of settle for a moment, if you let it kind of marinate in your heart, you'll see how remarkable it is how God has designed all of this. If we live with eternity in view, even our view of money, 
even our economic security, even how we listen to, translate, and apply the news of the day is completely transformed because our hope begins to be properly placed in the one who rules, the king who has set governments in their seat, the one who blesses all with everything for their enjoyment, the one who has given us all we will need and promises to always give us all that we will need, not just so that we can get by, but so that we will enjoy our lives right now and right here. In order that we lean forward in doing good, not clouding our vision of eternity with the joy that we experience now, but seeing that as a taste of what God is going to deliver us into for all eternity. We no longer are motivated by our temporal future. But we begin, when we apply properly, verses 17 through 19, we begin to apply that and see our investment in people and God as our investment in our eternal future. Let me make just a few applications as we close. Because of the way Paul has addressed money in 1 Timothy, not just here, but in 3 and in 5 and again in 6, we see that our view of money, I believe he's convinced us that our use of money ought to be one means for you to assess your spiritual health. Paul has reminded us here that money must be a profoundly spiritual topic. You've heard it said before that if you want to see what someone treasures, then get a look at that person's checkbook. That's a good colloquial way of putting the biblical principle. To the degree that you trust God, that you see Him as your only source of blessing and hope, To that degree, will your generosity and sharing, will your riches of good work begin to grow? There are very few elected officers in this church that are aware of the specifics of the giving in this church. In fact, it's only the treasurer that knows only the specifics. That's by design. But I'll tell you, when it appears that there are those who seem to be unable or unwilling to lean forward, generously sharing the blessings of God with the people of God. We want to know that. We don't want to know that because we're afraid that you're selfish. We're afraid that you're miserly. We want to know that because that tells us as a person in Christ, perhaps you have hit upon some hard providence or hardship. We want to be able to be rich in good works towards you. We don't want you to be there and rob yourself of the joy God has designed for you. We also want to know if you have run off the tracks, spiritually speaking. In all that Paul has said regarding money in 1 Timothy, we believe God's Word has given all of us as Christians a great gift. He makes, Paul makes, by the authority of God in His inerrant Word, he makes giving a robust spiritual discipline. Paul makes our giving an explicit act of trust. He makes our giving an aspect of our corporate worship, all of which are privileges of believers to engage in. So your consistent giving or lack of it will always be one indication of your spiritual health and your trust in God. Secondly, Paul has in laser focus here the church of Jesus Christ. Never does Paul in 1 Timothy or anywhere that I know of in the New Testament 
commend indiscriminate giving. Part of what the preservation of the church is dependent on is the generous giving, the generous sharing of those who avail themselves of her ministry. As mentioned a few weeks back, this is why we want the offering, we design the offering to be a part of the worship service and we put it where it is for a purpose. This is our ability to say with our actions, we trust you God, you have granted us the privilege of giving to you now since you've blessed us with all things. So we believe, as all worship is, our giving is an act of trusting God and blessing the ministry of Grace Community Presbyterian Church. You're saying that you trust God as the provider and now you want to generously share what He has given you with the church He has given you. It is profound worship. Thirdly, as a church, a passage like this has budget implications for our church. We can't ignore what Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 says. It doesn't just apply to me as an individual. doesn't just apply to you as an individual. doesn't just apply to us who are supposed to be enthusiastically generous as we give out of the bounty that God has given us. But your elders and deacons must have the same enthusiasm as we think about how you are blessing this church with your money Money that is also evidence of God's gracious provision through you. So our responsibility is always first and last to God and then to you, the members of Grace Community Presbyterian Church, on how we spend your funds. We take that responsibility critically, critically serious because we believe the Bible does. So we will not and have not been a stingy church when it comes to providing God's people what we believe are the necessary components to what it is we believe a church preserved is called to do, to feed, to shepherd, and care for our people, the people who are members here. Finally, I can say with full confidence that I and Tom and Barbara and our elders and deacons have been given the incredible blessing of serving in a church that is abundantly generous. You as a body, you members of Grace Community Church, live out of 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. We see it. You lean forward. You seek to be rich in good works. You want to generously share. What has gone on here in the five and a half, think about this with me, the five and a half short years of us being together is evidence of God's blessing through you. Amazing how God has expanded our joy as a church as He has allowed us, blessing us through your provision by building a building. Imagine having built the building and occupying this place in September of 2007. And then because of your generous giving, being able to come to you in December of 2009 and saying it's bought and paid for. That is joy God has blessed us with. We owe nothing on the building because you have leaned forward and you have sought to amass a richness of good works. Your generosity has been able to allow us to call Tom and to avail ourselves of His enormous gifts. If you have had any moments in our studies in Corinthians, the life of Calvin, in Romans, 
How can you not see God blessing you with joy from this gifted servant of His? Your generosity have allowed us to hire Barbara, who each and every week blesses us with her gifts in enabling our worship in the leadership of the music ministry, not to mention the weekend, week out blessing to me that she is administratively and otherwise. For us, in five and a half short years, to be able to have sent missionaries to the Philippines and to Mexico. For us, in five and a half short years, because of your generous sharing, for your willingness to amass riches of good works, we have been able to provide seed money for other churches that are wanting to be planted. Because of your generosity, we've been able to fund and sustain our growing Christian education program. A ladies ministry this year that has taken off and flown, which is a source of real joy provided to us by God. All of this, and I've not mentioned everything, all of it is evidence of your enormous generosity and willingness and ready to share God's provision with you and your church. You living out of 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, is enabling you to amass good works, to generously share, and to lean into the joy God has designed you for. The preservation of God's church requires many things. We've seen it in 1 Timothy. And Paul has reminded us a number of times that one of those things that is needed for God's church to be preserved is how we view and use our money. So we must pray that we are increasingly a group of people who see our triune God as the source of all blessing. And then, rightly, properly, and enthusiastically pursue joy through our continued generosity and willingness to share our blessings with one another through this church. We have a great gift here in you. So I hope that this morning and for the days to come, you will rejoice with me as the investment that you have made in the here and now is a promise from God that you are laying up for yourselves and for all of us a glorious treasure as a good foundation when we together will recognize one another and we will spend eternity praising our God, the one from whom all blessings flow.